The next reading is from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign for ever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So the first part of Exodus 15 
It's a hymn of praise celebrating God's deliverance of his people from slavery by bringing them safely across the Sea of Reeds. At least some parts of the hymn are very ancient indeed. It's a hymn that celebrates the attributes of God. So verse 7 says, In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Those who presume to rise up against the sovereignty of God are consumed and destroyed by his burning anger. It's a song of victory, and it needs to be read and understood in these terms. We may hesitate to celebrate the way in which God angrily crushes a rebellion against his authority. That image carries disturbing connotations for us of how despotic leaders deal with their enemies in a totalitarian regime. Mugabe was good at doing this. So we may well pause and ask ourselves, is God really like that? Do I want to praise him if he is? But if in, in our collective memory we knew that our ancestors had been imprisoned and enslaved under a barbarous and tyrannical government, we might well celebrate their liberation in terms like these. Pharaoh had claimed absolute power for himself, had set himself up over against God by mistreating and enslaving God's people, and God responded in sovereign anger to set his people free. You can see why this hymn celebrates the Exodus the way it does. There's a technical term for ascribing human attributes to God, and it's called an anthropomorphism. And we can see that happening time and again throughout this hymn of praise. Verse 6 says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in verse 12 we read, You've stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Does God literally have a right hand? Well, no, of course he doesn't. But the idea of God having a right hand is used as a symbol of his power and his strength. We find the same in verse 16, where the nations are overcome with terror and dread because of the greatness of the Lord's arm. Does God literally have an arm? No, he doesn't. But again, it's a symbol, a picture of his power and strength. Other references have some ambiguity attached to them. Verse 8 talks of the blast of God's nostrils piling up the waters of the sea. As if a forceful exhalation through his nose created a wind that blew the waters away. So it's quite a daring picture, is it not? Quite a strange picture. But the phrase could equally be translated, albeit less vividly, as the waters piling up at the blast of God's anger. And we may prefer to take it that way. Similar questions arise in verse 10, where the English Standard Version says, you blew with your wind and the sea covered them. But we could also read, you blew with your spirit, or even, you blew with your breath. The same idea of God blowing with such a force that the waters are driven back to create a dry pathway for his people to cross. 
Again, in no sense is the idea of God exhaling through his mouth or his nostrils to be taken literally, but it is a particularly striking way of picturing how God created a way of escape for his people. We find another anthropomorphism in verse 16, which talks about the sanctuary which God's hands have established. And the hymn says quite a lot about this place. It is God's own mountain, the place he made for his abode, his dwelling. It could be a reference to Mount Zion, where the temple of God would eventually be built. It could be a reference to Mount Horeb or Sinai, where the Lord first appeared to Moses, and where Moses was told to bring the people once they left Egypt. The place where God would make his covenant with his people and give them the Ten Commandments. People debate which mountain is in mind here, and to some extent their opinions are influenced by the perception of when this part of the hymn was written. But this talks about the holy place, God's own mountain, the home he built for himself with his own hands. Again, we're dealing with anthropomorphisms here. God doesn't have a house on a hill where he lives. But the startling idea at the core of this picture language, is that God wants to live in the world he's created. He wants to be at home among us. It has never been his intention or desire to create the world and then spend all his time watching it from a distance. The whole climax of the biblical story at the end of Revelation is when the heavenly Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to earth and a voice declares, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That has always been God's heart. It was there in the beginning as Genesis pictures him dropping by each evening for a chat with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's here in Exodus as God brings his people out of Egypt to conduct them to his holy mountain, to plant them there, to enable them to settle down and be at home in his presence. It's the vision behind Solomon building the temple in Jerusalem so that God could dwell among his people. It's the motivation behind God coming to live among us as one of us in the person of his son. It's why God gives us the Holy Spirit. So that as individuals and as a community of God's people, we might be the temple of the living God. The place where he dwells. The place where he is at home. Because he wants to be with us. Why on earth would God want to do that? Simply because he loves us why he created us in the first place. And when you look at how we behave sometimes, and certainly when you look at the newspaper headlines, you may think, why on earth would God want to spend time with us? We're horrible people. And yet God does. And it's because we're horrible people that Jesus went to the cross to redeem us, to deal with the terrible things we do, to lift them from us, to forgive us, to make us holy. Living amongst us was not an enjoyable experience of peace and harmony for the Son of God. It was an experience of hardship, rejection, betrayal, torture and death. 
How much does God want to be with us? Enough to go through all of that for us. And he went through it, absorbing into himself all our anger, our grief and hatred, returning in their place his love, his grace, his forgiveness. In Jesus, God redeems us from ourselves and makes us his people. Why? Because he wants to be with us. That much. So the hymn celebrates as well what it means to be the, God, the people whom God has purchased. Verse 13 says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. This is about God bringing his people home, safe and sound. They are the people whom God has redeemed in verse 13 and purchased in verse 16. Though the word purchased in verse 16 can also be translated created in the sense of brought into being. It's used of God forming my inward parts in Psalm 139. It's almost as if the exodus is the process through which God brings his people to birth. It's that kind of involvement with his people that is conveyed. God redeems his people because they matter to him. And having liberated them, he leads them safely home in his steadfast love and his strength. It's not as if he brings them out of Egypt and says, that's okay, job done now, you're on your own from now on. The Exodus only marked the start of an ongoing relationship between God and his people where God leads and guides them and accompanies them every step of the way. Where is the holy mountain? Well, the first stop is Mount Sinai or Horeb, where the Lord appeared to Moses, where Moses was told to bring the people and they would receive the law and the covenant would be made with them. The next stop is Mount Zion in the promised land where the temple would be built, where God would live amongst people. But the final destination is eternal life in the presence of God. When the heavenly Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and God makes his home among us, that is the ultimate outcome. That's where we're headed. But at every stage on that journey, God leads his people in his steadfast love and guides us by his strength on our way to that abode. And the journey is important. As people whom God has redeemed, we can look back and thank God that he has redeemed us. Not by bringing us safely across the Red Sea, in our case, but by giving his son for us. So that by his death and resurrection, we can be redeemed from sin and assured of eternal life. Dying with Christ, being raised with Christ, passing out of death into life. That is God's means of redeeming us. And when we look back to what Christ has done for us, we can give thanks that our salvation is secure because of what Jesus has done for us. That's why it's all about faith, believing that Christ has done everything necessary to reconcile us to God and to secure for us eternal life. And we can look forward, because of what Jesus has done, we can be confident that he has secured our place in heaven. That's where we're headed. That's where we belong. But the journey between now and then, matters too. On a daily basis, God is leading you in his steadfast love and guiding you in his strength. And the God who has called you to spend eternity in his presence 
wants to be intimately involved in every aspect of your daily living here and now. For our part, we cultivate that relationship with him through the routines of prayer and Bible study and church attendance. And these things are important, not because they are part of our religious duty, but because they maintain and develop the relationship that God wants to have with us. Because he wants to be with us. And he wants us to recognise his presence alongside us every day. God looks at you. God looks at each of you. The person whom he created in love. The person he gave his son to redeem. The person he wants to spend eternity with. And he offers, he promises to lead you every step of the way in his steadfast love and to guide you with his strength and bring you safely home as you put your trust in him. And what response does he look for from you? It's the response that we find at the beginning of the Israelites' hymn where each of them sings, The Lord, the Lord is my strength. He is my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. He wants you to name him as your God. And God loves it when we praise him. Not because he's so insecure that he always needs other people to reassure him how great he is, but because the expressions of steadfast love on his part and the answering response of praise on our part, these are all part and parcel of the language of relationship and a good relationship brings joy. There is joy in knowing that we belong to a God who loves us and gave his son to redeem us. And there is joy in God's heart when his love for us is reciprocated in our love for him and our praise to him for who he is and what he's done. That's why we praise God. That's why we sing hymns. God is truly amazing. Not least because amazing as he is, he loves each and every one of us with all his heart. And if ever you catch just a little glimpse of that truth, your natural response is to say, well, the Lord, the Lord is my strength. He's my song. He's become my salvation. He is my God. And I will praise him. Hallelujah.